Today, Stephen's going to find out about investment funds, ethical investment funds, and how you as an investor can judge the authenticity of the manager's and of the product. We'll also have our weekly market update with Henry Jennings and we'll take a look at how the market in general is travelling. It's Thursday, Finance and Stephen Pritchard. We had a budget earlier this week, didn't we? Oh, we had a state budget. State budget, yeah. State budget. And one of the biggest things that's coming out of the state budget is the proposal to give people an option to either pay stamp duty on the acquisition of a property or uh, pay land tax. Um, now, this would mean that um, people who elect to pay land tax will be paying land tax on their principal place of residence, um, and, but they won't pay any stamp duty up front. Now, of course, what's not said is you're going to be paying land tax forever on this principal place of residence. And once the property goes past into, into this land tax area, it can never come back. Mm. So what will happen down the track? If you've got two identical houses side by side um, or or two units side by side, exactly the same. The one, the vendor, the purchaser that's, or somewhere along the purchaser elected to pay land tax and the other one's paid stamp duty, the house that's elected to pay a land tax will be worth less than the one that's paid the stamp duty up front. Mm-hmm. And you can do the maths calculation and, and it's basically going to be the land tax um, discounted mm. for, for, you know, a hundred years or something, okay. and that and that'll be the price difference between those houses, and it will end up significant amount of money. So people will think they're saving money, and they're actually going to be financially worse off. Putting it off onto the never, never that just. Keeps but it's not going. only them; it's all the it's all the people who, who who purchase the property later as well. Yeah, because once that piece of property is subject to land tax, it's always going to be subject to land tax. So at the moment, land tax doesn't apply to your own residence. Land tax doesn't apply to your own residence, and there's a land tax threshold that applies. Applies to other res- uh, other other things other than your residence. Mm. So, but under the new scheme, if you elect to not pay the stamp duty when you buy the residence, um, mm. you, you're going to pay this land tax, and you'll be paying the land tax forever. Now, of course, the government said this is to ease the stamp duty burden, but the real reason the stamp duty has increased proportionally over the years is they've never indexed the thresholds. The thresholds have been the same for decades, mm. and as the property prices have gone up. Um, the stamp duty, the stamp duties are graduated scale. More and more properties are being pushed into the top scale, and that's the real reason. If they went back and indexed um, the, the the stamp duty rates back to when they were first brought in, you'd find that the stamp duty of the average person would fall dramatically. Okay. So it's really the government has been, you know, failed to index has has caused all this money to to be paid on additional stamp duties, and now what they're trying to do is get even more money by converting it to land tax. Mm, yeah, okay. So um, it's not in yet, is it? No, no, it's, uh, it's just kite flying at the kite, moment. Okay, But, but right. you know, it's not, it's not, you know, one of the papers had a headline yesterday, New South Wales government to abolish stamp duty. Well, they didn't say what they're being replaced with. It's actually going to cost you more money. Well, while we're talking about money, let's have a look at <laughs> commodities and currencies. Um, and co- yeah, so they're interesting. Um, the gold price was up $29 on the week to $2,585, and the crude oil price was down 20 cents, uh, 28 cents a barrel to $60.49. Um, the currencies, a uh, bit of a mixed bag there. Um, 
The Australian dollar was up against the US dollar to 73.87. I mean, the Reserve Bank's trying to get the exchange rates down, which is one of the reasons they cut interest rates, but it's, it seems to be having the opposite effect at the moment. Um, against the Great British Pound, we, we were, were 55.06 pence, and against the Euro, we were 61.63 euro cents. So um, generally, the currency was up. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the, the markets? The equity markets mm-hmm. around the world were up. Um, Australia, apart from the problems the ASX had on Monday, it was up um, on the week 107.1, which is six to 6,726. The S&P 500 was up 30 to 3,567, and the UK FTSE was up 46.3 to 6,385. So equity markets were all up. Um, stocks like all investors like to hold were generally up as well. BHP was up 38 cents to $36.83. Uh, CBA was up uh, $4.48 to $77.55. And NRB was up $0.20 cents to uh, $4.98. And Telstra was, was steady at $3.08. Mm-hmm. Um, the fuel price, $1.16.5 in Newcastle, which was down 4.8. And Sydney, $1.25.6, which was up $0.14. Cents. And the diesel price in Newcastle, $1.19.1. And in Sydney, $1.14.5. Mm, so a little bit lower in Sydney still. So Christmas is coming up. We'll see if the fuel prices are. I think it's... Uh, is that your theory? Yeah, well, that was yours. You told me that. Um, I think what's it uh, for and a bit... Not far till Christmas. Is it four weeks or five weeks? Well, today's the 19th. Must be five weeks. Must be five Five weeks. weeks Yeah, five weeks tomorrow to Christmas. So, you know, time to start shopping for Christmas presents. If you haven't already, it is 21 past 12. A little later on in the program, we'll take a look at ethical investment funds and how you can evaluate whether they're uh, genuine and right for you. To a new RFM's Thursday Finance and Stephen Pritchard. Time we had a look at our weekly market update with Henry Jennings, who is Senior Market Commentator at Marcus today. And welcome along, Henry. Welcome, Henry. Hi, guys. Hi. And uh, we're a short week this week on the market because ASX couldn't get their (laughs) trading system to work on Monday. Yeah, not a great look, is it? A treacherous look. Um, uh, it goes back every four years, apparently, the, a- the ASX upgrades its systems. And um, we, we saw that anniversary whip round on Monday, and um, the market went down. It didn't, I think 10.23 was the last trade I saw in something like BHP. Mm-hmm. And then it was an epic fail mm-hmm. uh, for the rest of the day, and they basically cancelled the day, which is, which is not a great look um, for the market. And interestingly, as a smaller side, because the ASX doesn't have a complete monopoly on trade, because there is Chiax, which is the rival exchange, which remained open. It did purge all existing orders, but you could still put in new orders. But what was interesting was that the market didn't gravitate to Chiax. In fact, the volumes dissipated in Chiax as well. Uh, and for some years, people have suspected that Chiax is basically just a
centre-point matching system, so it wasn't all um, there wasn't all the bed of roses on Tuesday either. But luckily, I think I think it's back in action properly now. Well, we hope, we hope, we hope. And uh, and uh, Asics going to take some action, no doubt. Um, I would think they'll get a, a rap on the knuckles. Asic, I guess, has been a far softer policeman in uh, in the COVID environment. We even seen. There was an AFR business uh, and banking summit this week, and we've seen lots of um, lots of calming, soothing, positive um, notes coming out from bank CEOs mm-hmm. about housing and uh, the economy, and also from APRA and ASIC as well that uh, that they're not quite so, um, mm. shall we say, vigorous at the moment for um, mm. for pursuing things. Yes, mm. yes. I think ASIC's got a few problems internally. Well, they seem to lose a lot of staff. There's, there's yes. um, problems finding receipts. And... Yes, <laughs> they, they think, uh, it reminds me of uh, the Oscar Wilde quote so, mm. about um, losing people, and mm. one is a misfortune. But um, yes, not, not yes. a great look. And um, the government, or the taxpayers, I suppose, are going to foot part of the bill for a new. Uh, Plant, a new vaccine plant that CSL is going to build um, jointly in uh, Melbourne. A billion dollars mm. the taxpayers are tipping in. Yeah, well, tax, taxpayers have, have tipped in big dollars for uh, vaccines around the world for the research. Of course, we've had Operation Warp Speed, mm-hmm. um, which has... Um, Operation Warp Speed has been the US uh, push to find a vaccine, which luckily for those people pushing to find a vaccine, because the vaccine... The, coronavirus is actually out of control in the US at the moment. They've had mm-hmm. 250,000 deaths now and, and mm-hmm. it's up to sort of 160,000 people uh, a day. That's a day. Uh, it's, it's incredible. You know, South Australia, don't get me started on this one because I was due to go to Adelaide on uh, Saturday to go to the Flinders Range, yes. closed on 20 cases. Yes. Um, America's 160,000 a day. But luckily for the vaccine developers, they've had a, a, a Petri dish of, uh, of people to uh, to look at and experiment on experiment on basically um, and and the, the growth of the pandemic has really helped operation walk speed so yes the government is spending I think it's about a billion bucks over um, a period of time this is not for the the vaccine for corona not this coronavirus anyway this is for future ones and for the flu vaccine but it's certainly it's general general stuff gen- yeah general you know the government's good at general sort of uh, revenue and general expense mm-hmm. um and of course CSL has to put in the other half and they're putting in 800 million and the government's putting in a billion and uh, they'll build a new production facility which is good so it's good, good. it's have. being spent here for a change yeah yeah it's mm-hmm. um it's it's good to have uh, local capacity to uh, to create vaccines, but uh, not, not for this one, not for CV-19, yeah. unfortunately. This is Thursday Finance on 2 and URFM, and Henry Jennings is giving us the benefit of his advice on the market, our market update. Stephen Pritchard. Um, Kogan's interesting because some of the boards seem to be shocked that the shareholders are inflamed over the proposal to give a 90 million or 100 million of options to a, a couple of the directors. I mean, yeah. it's just amazing, isn't it? Just amazing. It, it, it is amazing. It just, uh, I guess it shows that the board is really not that independent and really not looking after the shareholders. Um, they're proposing to give uh, Rosalind Kogan and David Schaefer 
around 90 million bucks worth of uh, shares through an options package, which is on a deferred price way back to way back when. Um, and they've got a vote coming up. I think it's on Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is possible that if, if the board can't get this up, they will just go ahead anyway and sort it out themselves. Um, and instead of issuing options, they will just give them shares which mm-hmm. they will have then three years to buy, apparently, according to the Fin Review this morning. And that liability will fall to the shareholders. And it was only a little bit a while ago that Kogan raised $100 million bucks. It's possible now that in the future they would have to raise more money to be able to pay for the shares that they've bought for the founders, Rosalind and David, um, to enable them to to um, to be rewarded and stay with the company, uh, and th- this is what amazes me. The board says that you know we have to have to um, you know reward mm-hmm. the founders and ensure that they stay with Kogan. Where are these guys going to go? Mm-hmm. His name's on the door. Mm-hmm. They're both massive shareholders still of Kogan. If they leave, they'll be shooting themselves in the foot. So they're not mm-hmm. going to leave. This is just mm-hmm. absolute. It's disgraceful. This is, this is pretty disgraceful, actually. I'm amazed that. Um, you know, ASIC and the ASX are letting them get away with this, I have to say. And Stephen May, the shareholder activist, has been trying to stop this sort of behaviour. But this is just jobs for them. You this know, is money the, for this is, I have to admit, this is the worst I've ever seen, $100 million. This is the, you know, it's just like the board writing a $100 million cheque mm. to these guys on behalf of the shareholders and saying thanks very much. Now, they've been rewarded pretty fancily by the, mm. the rise in the share price anyway through their holdings. And a lot of it's got to do with COVID. That's increased their sales dramatically. Yeah, I, I just find this absolutely astonishing. And it's mm. just someone should be doing something about it, but I'm sure someone won't because shareholders are just happy to go along with the fact that they've benefited as well. And uh, if someone's got to pay, someone's got to pay. Mm. Yes, well, someone's going to have to pay at Crown Resorts, perhaps. Uh, Helen Coonan could um, look for a new board seat at Kagan. Yeah, uh, she'd, be, she'd be ideal. Yes. She would be ideal. Yes. There's, there's a few that would be ideal there. So, I mean, I was surprised that, you know, after the announcement yesterday that the Liquor and Gaming authorities deferred mm. granting a licence um, in, in New South Wales or allowing mm. them to open, I mean... Yeah, and all these admissions of money laundering and may or may not be money laundering. And, you know, I'm surprised the share price hasn't fallen because, because you know, if New South Wales has got fit and proper person issues, well, why aren't the regulators in the other states starting to ask questions? Um, that's a good question, Stephen. That is a good question. I, I think one of the reasons is that this, this is going to allow um, Crown to open their facility in what is really going to be a soft opening, so they'll mm-hmm. be able to operate their non-gaming side of Barangaroo's um, casino. Mm-hmm. Um, and given that the Barangaroo casino that they have, uh, have built is, is pretty much focused on the high rollers and the whales that are supposed to come in from China and elsewhere, which, of course... That ain't going to happen. No, no, they've all been taken to the factory now. So, you know, in some ways, the casino itself would have cost them money to open with staffing and regulations and compliance and all that side of things. And they're better off just running it as a big hotel and property development, maybe. Um, I think that is partially why um, the company share price hasn't fallen dramatically, but it has been under, um, mm. you know, it has been going nowhere and going sideways for some time. 
although it popped up a little bit on the whole reopening the economy trade. Of course, Melbourne is their jewel in the crown. Mm-hmm. Um, Sydney was just going to be an adjunct. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised. You know, it's only down uh, 1.7% mm-hmm. today. I'm but, surprised. But it, but it does give them that option to mm-hmm. sort of, I guess, iron out the wrinkles. If, mm-hmm. um, if things don't improve in Feb- by February, of course, they might not get the licence. And, um, yeah, they probably should never have got it in the first place, mm-hmm. to be honest. Yeah. Um, and one thing to find out, I was surprised that Elders' profit was up 80%, $124 million. It's raining. It's raining. It's, it's just, raining, just man. just shows how profitable rural agriculture can be with the right seasons, doesn't it? It does. It does. Yeah, it, yeah. It's very much at the whim of the weather gods. But, um, you know, Elders has had a, a great a great run. It's a good story. It's well managed. It's everywhere in the, in the rural sector. Um, you know, the rural sector has been a beneficiary of of COVID to some extent mm-hmm. because these are isolated communities and farms yeah. that haven't had to have the same sort of lockdowns mm-hmm. and, and rain has been extraordinarily good. Drought has, has eased and uh, elders have made hay while the sun has, sh- while the rain beats down. Well, the, rain, well, the rain beats, <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. On that note, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll wait till the hay beats down next week. Oh, <laughs> The sun yeah. beats sun down is, next week. All <laughs> the rain falls. The rain. Thank you, Henry James. Thanks, and Bye. he is from Marcus today. Thursday Finance, and we're looking at some ethical investment, um, well, issues, I suppose you might say. And we have with us James Taylor, who's head of ESG, Elliston Capital. And, of course, Stephen Pritchard is still here too. I'm still here. Um, one of, the, one of the things that uh, every time I turn around lately, there seems to be a new fund called uh, Ethical Investment Fund or uh, ESG Fund or Socially Responsible Investment Fund, and it's all it's all getting very confusing. So I thought I'd get James Long, who's an expert in this area, to talk to us about how you how you can tell um, what's really an ethical investment fund and one that's kind of just badged up to attract to attract uh, money flows into it, James. Um, good afternoon, everybody. An absolute pleasure to be here um, with you and your listeners. Um, absolutely, the, uh, the the problem is in this day and age where where um, uh, many people are interested in having their investments uh, managed in an ethical um, way. Uh, the marketing departments of of the big fund managers and the small ones are clearly cognizant of this and uh, are very keen to put together product um, that. Um, apparently, at least at face value, matches the values of, of potential investors. And the problem is, um, how do you know as a potential client of those uh, products that um, those values are, are shared by the fund manager and that um, what you're actually, uh, what it says on the tin is what you're actually getting? Um, the principal problem here is one of information asymmetry because, of course, the fund manager knows or should know a lot more about the companies that he's investing um, on his client's behalf than, 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 than the client. Um, and I think a very important point to make here is that here in Australia, Australia ranks last of all the OECD countries in terms of what level of disclosure is mandated on fund managers and their products um, in terms of um, you know what information they have to give um, through documentation and, and to to uh, to um, clients of 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 theirs, um, so that's quite that struck me as being quite quite disturbing. Um, the reality is, if uh, um, all your fund manager has to tell you is the top five holdings in that fund, 
Um, what does that top five holdings really tell you about what's in the portfolio you're invested in? Um, if the portfolio has, for instance, made claims that it avoids fossil fuels, you might have um, documentation on a monthly basis that tells you that you're invested in, in, in five renewable entry, uh, uh, energy companies, but if you don't know what the other 90% of the portfolio is invested in, what's to stop it being invested in coal companies, for instance? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's there's kind of a you feel there's a kind of lack of disclosure in some of these fund managers about where the money's um, actually being put. Well, there is absolutely a lack of disclosure because uh, a limited disclosure is mandated by by, by law. Now, um, the one thing that clients should say. Uh, look for is a greater than bare minimum level of, of disclosure. Um, for instance, um, the, the good funds in my eyes will be happy to disclose full holdings across their portfolios on, on, on a regular basis. Um, I would suggest that um, clients also look for, for evidence of that fund manager and that company's values. They should, for instance, have um, a, re- a responsible investment policy that would describe how um, how the manager um, implements um, any ethical position they claim to take, for instance. The manager might, for instance, have an ethical charter explaining its, its views on, on contentious issues such as um, investing in, in weapons manufacturers or, or tobacco or, or, or correlated uh, uh, companies. Um, and um, again, I should always stress um, ask questions. Ask questions of your, of, of your managers. Um, and now that's typically not that easy to do because um, you, you're one of potentially one of you know, thousands of, of, of clients and of course the fund manager doesn't want to pick up the phone uh, to every one of those clients. So that's where the reliance upon the documentation and the level of disclosure um, uh, becomes so important. So so what about when um, um, some of the large fund managers have um, ethical funds and other funds? Um, is it important that that separate teams manage these or are they managed by the same people or how, how do you kind of work all of that out or can you work all that out? Well, it's often um, something that I scratch my head about when, when I'm at conferences and I, I, I hear a manager stand up and talk about the, the billions of dollars that their team is investing in a, in a responsible or an ethical way on behalf of their clients. And then, then in another, another stream of the same conference, somebody else in that same organization will stand up and talk about, for instance, their mining products and their portfolios of, of, of mining stocks. And that, and that speaks to me to a lack of authenticity behind you know, the culture of, of of that particular company. Um, it is very difficult, I understand, if you're a you know, global financial services conglomerate to, to, to have um, every employee have shared, shared, shared values. But on the other hand, um, I think some of the most successful um, uh, ethical or ESG investors are, are smaller boutiques whereby every person within that business is there because they have a shared value around around the way they want to invest in a, in an ethical way and and often um that culture is represented in other ways for instance those companies being supportive of charitable foundations or or um supporting other good causes with the the, the, the benefits of uh, and the profits of their business um all of which adds to the authenticity of of of, of those fund managers in the product this is to on your rfm's 
Thursday Finance and we're looking at ethical investments and how you know whether they're genuine or not with James Taylor from Elliston Capital and Stephen Pritchard, of course. And one of, one of the other things is, um, you know, I, I saw a research came out from the US that a large number of fund managers didn't invest in their own fund. So, I mean, I thought that was kind of astounding. So if they're not investing in it, why should you? So is that is that a similar case out here in Australia, do you know? I don't know the statistics, but I'm, I'm firmly of the view that um, I, I will always eat the cake that I bake, and and it would. Uh, um, I certainly wouldn't invest my money with with a manager who wouldn't actually take the same uh, same investment risk themselves. I, I, I think that that is a, a very strong signal, um, and there should be really no legal impediment to to a fund manager um, putting. Um, putting his own savings in the product that he's managing on, on, on behalf of others. So I, I would certainly look for that um, as a signal as to authenticity. Yeah, so investors should probably ask the fund, ask the fund manager how much they're investing in the – or do they invest in the fund, I suppose, is the first question. Uh, absolutely, and I, th- I think there should be an expectation that if, 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 if the fund manager is paid – uh, paid bonuses or any sort of variable remuneration as a consequence of that performance of that, that again be channeled into uh, into that fund because at the end of the day, incentives inform outcomes. Um, and uh, uh, if he's eating the same cake as, as yourself, then he's not going to poison You sound like uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger there. Anyhow, so what uh, what is ESG integration? Um, ESG integration is, is, is a process, and I think this is again where product labelling can be confusing to, to, the, to the investor, um, because ESG integration simply means that when we um, research and analyse a company with a view to potentially investing it, we look, as well as looking at that company through the traditional lenses of, is this a good financial investment, we consider whether there's any material risks or opportunities related to environmental, social or governance that the ESG issues um, as they relate to that company. Sometimes there's nothing material, sometimes there's obvious material risks in, in, in coal miners, for instance. Um, so that ESG integration is part of the investment process. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you end up with a portfolio of um, companies that have some positive environmental or social or governance aspects about them. It's a process, not, a, not an outcome, but it's a very important part of the process to make sure that uh, um, we invest in a way that um, matches the claims that we might make about that particular product. And so, so is there, there seems to be third-party people now who, who are providing some kind of research on, on companies' sustainability and ESG claims. Do, do you kind of rely on those or do you get down and do your own work? Um, quite frankly, again, I personally, we personally do all of our own work and I think, again, it's a, um, one of those questions to, that, 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 that gives an idea as to the authenticity of the product because... Um, any third-party provider of opinion is only as good as the mm-hmm. quality of that opinion. And, and, and the reality is, I know in many instances, um, the opinions that I, that I read on the screen in front of me from these third-party services um, are incorrect. Um, but without taking my, my view, uh, um, I think uh, the academic evidence that's compared there's three major providers, I won't name them, but three major providers, the academics lined up their, their opinions and, and discovered there was absolutely no relation in their opinions. 
So that tells me that I can't rely upon any of them. Um, if they were all coming to the same conclusion about what's a bad company and what's a good company, then, then I think there would be some, some authenticity to their product offering. So um, we absolutely expect that work to be done um, ourselves when we research the companies that we invest in. So what you're saying is there's three providers of this type of information and they all have different answers. Absolutely. That tells you something. Yeah, well, it tells you, uh, yeah, it tells you, uh, yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, and so, so is there some kind of benchmark that's used here or...? or, or? Um, but, well, one, another, another, um, another factor related to these third-party um, ratings agencies, if you like, is that um, they have spawned um, uh, another industry of new benchmarks, new indices, um, indices such as um, yeah, um, highly ethical Australian uh, companies or, oh, yeah, or yep. ESG indices here, there, and everywhere. And, and, and the, problem, the problem with these is that, 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 again, they're driven by the opinions of, of, of these third parties. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm not claiming to be perfect myself, but when I see a sort of a fundamental flaw in their, their differing opinions, then that suggests to me that, that there's a real danger there. That um, Again, the devil's in the detail. A, a, a classic example is um, I was looking at recently um, an Australian um, index, and it uh, um, had the phrase ethical leaders in its title. So what it had done to construct this index was to try and pick the best, from an ethical perspective, the best company in each sector. So in effect, it still had a coal company in the index, but it just picked the coal company, the coal mining company that it considered to be the best from an ethical perspective. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's fine if the user of that index or the product that, that uses that index understands that. But if the product's just relying upon this index being ethical, then the user, the client, might not understand yep. that it, you may still get an exposure to, to an industry that doesn't chime with your own values. Yeah, and I saw, I saw just finishing up here, I saw a claim that um, they, they're Australian equities, but they exclude tobacco stocks. Well, as far as I know, there's no listed tobacco stocks in Australia. So why would you even Absolutely say it? Not. Yeah. Absolutely not. I mean, this is the, 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 uh, this concept's called greenwashing. This is where where um, products and managers um, make make uh, claims that are either redundant or just not relevant around you know the ethics or the ESG uh, characteristics of, of their portfolio. Another one is um, that's, that's very fashionable at the moment. We we term rainbow washing. This is this is where um, portfolio managers um, try and match the constituents of their portfolio to the sustainable development goals. Um, and the sustainable, sustainable development goals um, are a concept that's come out of the United Nations, which is looking for um, positive... Right. Okay, we're kind of running out of time here, James. It's such an interesting, interesting topic. Thank you very much, James year. Taylor. Yeah, we'll catch up with you again sometime soon, I hope. And uh, thank you, James Taylor from Ellison Capital, head of ESG. And that is Thursday Finance for today. And uh, we'll be back next Thursday after the midday news. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.